0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, Brian here in the studio, going to be uh, giving you a little bit of a review, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, if you're uh, late to the game, it's a review and probably going to be a lot of spoilers ahead, so if you haven't had a chance to watch this movie yet, you might want to uh, go check it out on HBO Go or some sort of other streaming service you might be accessing. Uh, before you listen to this or maybe go ahead and listen to it if you don't care about spoilers and you'll want to watch the movie after you hear this or maybe you already saw the movie and you hated it in which case you can write in the comments which I will not read all right so King Arthur Legend of Sword I was uh, I was a fan I watched it twice Second time around, I was more critical. Uh, once I tell people people's story quite a bit, I had a professor in graduate school um, that taught me to uh, critique people uh, and then, uh, and, and even taught me to not go overboard with it. So, but it is something uh, that I left college uh, being able to do or left graduate school being able to do. I, In my mind, uh, I'm able to think critically a lot more. So uh along the lines of uh being critical, I'll go into some uh things I didn't like. I liked a lot of things about the movie. I'm not by no means a historian of the Arthurian legend. Uh my earliest memory of that uh would be his little kid seeing uh King Arthur uh or I'm sorry, uh King Arthur's legend in Sword of the Stone. So I think everybody probably has a, a classic memory of that. Walt Disney movie I think it came out in 1963 so uh, also Monty Python The Quest of the Holy Grail 75 I believe Excalibur came out in eighty, eighty one. Uh, and I, I did see that as a kid I was probably 12 or 13 years old uh, and I, Guy Ritchie director of this film also goes into uh, kind of that was a, a major inspiration to him early on like he remembered seeing it when uh, when he was a kid when it came out so uh he uh, I think he did a good job incorporating a lot of elements and then his directing style into the film but <clears throat> again there were there were some places where I felt like there uh there there could have been you know a little bit more or a little bit less uh, one of my favorites, this came out when I was a kid, first night, Richard Gere, Julia Orman, Sean Connery, uh, classic telling of the, uh, sort of Guinevere Lancelot story. Uh, King Arthur is played by Sean Connery. My, uh, it's got a couple of other big names in it. Ben, Ben Cross, I think is his name. Praise plays a guy named Prince Maligant. Anyway, it's excellent. Excellent movie. I really enjoy it. Uh, Good telling of the story, uh, kind of devoid of any, um, any of the fantasy side of that of that legend. Like it, it, there's no Merlin, there's no there's no magic, there's no, nothing like that. And I thought Guy Ritchie did a pretty fair job with incorporating those elements into the story. Whereas I felt like another one, um, the Clive Owen King Arthur that came out a few years back. I believe that came out when I was in high school. Uh, pretty good telling on the movie, and they kind of danced around the magical uh, side of the story or the fantasy side of the story. Uh, but I, I really like the elements that he brought in. I thought it was a unique storytelling with the Guy Ritchie version, and uh, I'll start kind of uh, digging into the film for you guys here. So cast and crew, uh, we'll go into that a little bit. Uh, cast Eric Banner from Troy. Uh, and he's in other movies too, but I'm, I've never been a huge Eric Banna fan. He's, he's okay. I think he was in the one movie thing about the incredible Hulk. Uh, and then they cast Edward Norton, who I thought was the greatest, but is apparently hard to work with. And then they moved on to Mark Ruffalo for the Avengers. So cast Eric Banna, uh, he plays Prince, uh, Hector, Prince of Troy, gets killed by Brad Pitt in that movie. I kind of see him as a lesser version of Gerard Butler and like every film he plays a pretty good um character in this movie. His character is uh he is King Arthur's dad. And uh see uh let's see what is his name. Jude Law is another one. Okay, Uther. Uther. You know, we'll go we'll go into a little bit more about him. So, the Pendragon line is this line of kings that's kind of been um blessed into uh you know the the throne at Camelot. So that's uh Uther is uh played by Eric Bana. Then Vortigan is played by Jude Law. And he's the brother, uncle of King Arthur who is uh played by Charlie Hunman from Sons of Anarchy. So uh Jude Law, classic uh he's been in Cold Mountain uh, coming out. Uh, he's going to be in the new, uh, play, uh, Albus Dumbledore in the new, uh, fantastic beast film that's coming out. And, uh, I look forward to seeing that. Um, he plays a really, really good bad guy in this movie. I was super impressed with his character. I'm, I'm a bit of a Jude law fan. I really, really enjoyed him in cold mountain, uh, in, uh, I don't know if you guys remember that movie I Heart Huckabees but that was a great film that he was in and he's a pretty diverse character uh, and I think that uh, he did a great job in this movie as a Vortigan so also we said uh, Charlie Hunman, Sons of Anarchy his diet and exercise and training with Guy Ritchie for this movie they did jujitsu, they did Muay Thai uh, he, he's, uh, there's a video out there of him talking about his diet and he's just kind of like what he's eating for breakfast, lunch and dinner Couple of avocados, the breakfast fruit, ter- tons of turkey, bacon, egg whites, and in a- some yolks. It's like um, you look into it. He really, um, he really got in awesome shape for this movie, and was doing like I think he said a thousand squats a day, five hundred push-ups a day, a hundred pull-ups a day, all of this crazy stuff, and training jiu-jitsu and kickboxing him or uh, muay thai on the side. So. <clears throat> Fascinating uh, little look if you listen to him that uh, in that video and then watch uh, watch him train, uh, or watch how ripped he is in the movie. Can, you can you see a little bit of him training, him giving us what he did to kind of put on that muscle mass and get ready for the film. They filmed this movie for a super long time, so I think uh, Ritchie said it took him like three years to complete. So um, another character I really enjoyed in this movie was. Um, I never remember how to say this dude's name, but, uh, uh Hussan, he is the, um, guy who plays in Gladiator, Never Back Down, Blood Diamond, um, super dark, complected guy, great actor. I really enjoy him in pretty much any movie I've seen him in, but, um, uh, You know, I think everybody's familiar with who I'm talking about. Then also, um, I've noticed this a lot more. I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. Like I mentioned, I watch this on HBO. I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. And more and more movies I've been seeing, like, uh, or or shows, TV shows, I've been noticing Game of Thrones characters in. It's kind of weird. Uh, Like I noticed the lady that plays um, Theon Greyjoy's uh, sister the other day. Um Man, I'm spacing on her name right now. I think it's... uh, man, It's not Lara. Dang it, sorry. Well, anyway, we're not doing a podcast about Game of Thrones right now. We're talking about P- Game of Thrones characters that are part of this podcast, which the uh, actor that plays Roose Bolton and the actor that plays uh Peter Baelish, a.k.a. Littlefinger, who I think everybody is glad that that dude got knifed off the show by Arya. The, um... Uh, last, uh, last season is, is happy to see him go. I know I was, dude was a major, major douche. So <clears throat> anyway, a couple Game of Thrones characters. I noticed, uh, Game of Thrones character, um, in uh, that, that Theon Greyjoy's sister's in that movie, uh, the end of the effing world or TV show rather, uh, end of the effing world on Netflix. It's a Netflix original, pretty crazy little show I like 20 minute episodes, and uh who uh what the uh, black mirror several several episodes of Black Mirror have different g o t characters so uh and I think that is to do largely in part with um the Game of Thrones has a large contingent of british actors and actors in the u k like Charlie Hummond, for example, he's from the u k so uh moving on, guy Ritchie. I I would say he's famed for his movies, uh, Lock, Stock, Two Smoking Barrels, Snatch, Rock and Roller, the Sherlock Holmes movies with Jude Law and uh, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, He's a black belt in BJJ, trains Muay Thai. Uh he's, he's talked a little bit um, in interviews about uh, his inspiration uh, from the 1980s uh, rendition of The King Arthur Telling and that that movie being one that played an impression on him. I know that he brought in like the Lady of the Lake later on in this movie, and that's something that I feel like he um, was inspired to do by uh, seeing uh, this earlier version. And he, like I said, he really does a good job incorporating some of my favorite elements from some of the other movies that I've seen. But then again, I'm not a historian, as I mentioned, on the elements of the Arthurian legend. Uh, Maybe we can have an expert in uh, world literature on, which I actually have a friend uh, who I would classify as that, to discuss uh, that on a different spot. So Guy Ritchie, uh, he, I feel like, hit somewhere between Lord of the Rings and the movie The 13th Warrior with this also, another recent film I've seen that I would probably watch again, I've thought about watching again, is, uh, is I think it's probably underrated, is uh, The Last Witch Hunter with Vin Diesel. I thought there were really similar elements from the sort of uh, occult side of that movie that is similar in 13th Warrior and similar in King Arthur. So if you've never seen 13th Warrior, it is badass. You need to check it out. It's got Antonio Banderas. Uh, is sort of the uh, lead um, protagonist, so check that out. So I think that this this fantasy-wise and suspense and everything, all the elements of a good action-adventure fantasy film, this falls somewhere between like a Lord of the Rings and a 13th Warrior. So, <clears throat> th- and why I say that, and, and maybe also I will throw in, like there were a lot of elements of this that reminded me of the movie 300, just in the cinematography and uh, just the... Some of the, sort of the uh the battle sequences and things of that nature, so opening scene goes way over the top, and I liked it. I was hooked in on the opening scene. It shows um these three hundred foot elephants, like first it shows Camelot and beautiful, and like kind of tells you a story about the mages uh being sort of have gone rogue and into hiding because this one dude who was a total a hole really effed things up for everybody and so this one particular mage, uh, who I'll uh, talk a little bit more about in a second, he is uh, conjured uh, up this crazy battle, and Camelot is uh, like the last hearth of uh, them uh, like uh, being able to advance and take over pretty much England. So <clears throat> opens with these 300-foot elephants, and he said he did this to give him a broad creative license throughout the film so it took it took him three months to to write uh, sorry three months to uh, write it and three years to make this movie. Snatch took like ten months beginning to end, and i'm pretty sure that's like getting all the way from day one production to the uh to the theater if i 'm not mistaken so Um, Uther's king of the Britons shows him kind of on looking, these elephants coming in, Vortigern standing there right next to him. And, uh, it does show, um, early on in the film, um, Arthur son of Uther, the born king. He's like just a little kid, maybe like probably less than five years old. I I can't remember how old they depict him as, excuse me. So these 300-foot elephants are carrying these crazy balls and chains and spikes and blades, and they're just wiping stuff out and wrecking shop. And guy from Never Back Down is, like, leading the charge, and those dudes are losing, and they are kind of retreat back. Arthur, Eric Bana, is going to swoop in and save the day, unlike he did in Troy when Brad Pitt totally annihilates him, one of the best fight scenes. Uh, I just recently watched that fight scene. Uh, Somebody shared it on Facebook and inspired me to want to watch Troy again, which... I'm a big fan of that movie but not a big fan of Eric Bana in general or in that movie. So <clears throat> these war elephants are riding riding on Camelot and they have they they're carrying um they're carrying armies sent by these mages. These mages are like in one of these war elephants and um Mordred is this lead like the head mage that's kind of brought all of this uh, up against Camelot and uh his caused uh caused everything to go wrong with, like, I mean, he's defeated everybody. People have retreated back into Camelot. Camelot's looking like it's pretty wrecked. They've, they are, uh, they're have they looking pretty distressed to the point that Jude Law is, like, sitting there talking to Uther, and he's like, hey, I know Mordred, because he did. He went and trained with him. Their father sent Jude Law to train with the mages, and he trained with Mordred, and we'll go into that a little bit more in a second. So Arthur, um, I'm sorry, not Arthur, Uther uh tells uh yeah you know, as I mentioned, so we'll just say like blessed for for lack of a better word or whatever, but the Pendragon family line sort of as i as I understand it, has Merlin's blessing. Merlin took part of the staff that was used to kind of start this initial uh war between mage and men, and which is in this culminating battle and Merlin stole part of that and forged Excalibur and sort of gave it to the Pendragon family line. And that gives them sort of some, some balance, uh, to what's going on. So like Arthur, uh, with Excalibur, he is able to wield extreme power. I liked how they, how they went into Excalibur and I didn't like it. I'll talk a little more about that later on as we get into, uh, king arthur growing up so <clears throat> these um this opening scene mordred's depicted as super evil warlock crazy dude riding in with all these mages around him this is like where i'm reminded of the the people uh in uh 13th warrior the antagonist sort of tribe or uh, it's, uh i don't know, even know what you would want to call them demon people like they're people, but they're crazy looking and like, like I don't know, occultish. It's it's crazy. So Jude Law, he's holding Uther's crown. He's like, "Hold my crown. I'm gonna I'm gonna ride out here and single handedly use Excalibur to take this dude out." So Jude Law's like, "Okay, you know, sorry, I said we need to surrender and." Arthur starts riding out over the uh kind of over the drawbridge, I guess, or maybe the bridge has been destroyed. I was a little unsure on this. And then just leaps his white horse over like so he can like jump onto this three hundred foot elephant and the white horse probably falls down to the bottom and dies. I was not happy about that. I was like, dude, you're just gonna open up and kill a horse in the first scene, bro. But actually that was maybe the saddest thing that happened. So <clears throat> anyway, after the after he um rides his horse off the edge he jumps on there uses Excalibur to go in and kill Mordred throws his crown and everything is great and they live happily ever after but not really because the thing is Jude Law's character kind of allied with Mordred to bring about the attack and and create this, uh, you know, situation. He was pretty much behind it happening because he trained with that guy, as I mentioned earlier, and he was envious of Uther on the throne. So after that goes wrong, he... um, There's some fighting in this one scene with the King's administration, little fingers there, and... um, which I think he's Bootstrap Bill. I'll go a little bit into the characters. There was a lot of characters in this movie. Even the second time, I was, start, I was starting to kind of figure out okay, that's Rubia. That's there's like Arthur has like all these friends when he grows up, and there's like that sect of people, and then there's like the original court, and then there's um, like Jude Law's mistress, and it just, there's a lot of characters. So, hey, we'll go on um, back and forth scene between like Uther and Vortigan. So like there's this fighting on whether or not they're going to keep killing the mages at the at the not round table cuz it's not a round table yet. We'll go we'll cover that at the end. But um back and forth sort of scene between Vortigan and Arthur, uh Uther rather. Uh, between him waking up and getting his wife out of bed, and them getting Arthur and kind of going through the city, and then there's like Jude Law's down in this crazy moat, ringing this bell, and this crazy freaking octopus creature with all these weird magical powers, and he's all fat and looks like Job of the Hut with tentacles. It's wild. And he has like these other little crazy mer women octopus. Things that freak me out, really, honestly, I'm I'm kind of cringing thinking about it. So, good job with that, uh, Guy Ritchie. So he makes a deal with uh, this crazy octopus man creature thing. To uh, he's going to become a he's going to sacrifice someone he loves into this moat area into uh, this like I guess it's uh, I guess it's a moat. But uh, so there's a Camelot going on uther's fleeing through the city It's flashing back and forth and jude law takes his wife down there and just kills her with the knife to the belly and then like arthur like stabs someone with a knife in another scene and there's this sort of back and forth contrast with the camera and i thought it was a really good job how they did that with them like going through the city and then jude law like sacrificing his wife and then it going back to arthur getting telling his wife to like get the bo- unhook the boat and he's carrying arthur And then it's Jude Law becomes this crazy demon knight with this cradle scythe. And him and Eric Bana have this pretty sick fight sequence, I'm not going to lie. In which, uh, but right right off the bat, uh, Uther's wife just, boom, Jude Law kills her. And then Arthur's in the boat, like all kind of swaddled up. And then um, Uther, Eric Bana, fights with Jude Law's demon knight, this crazy you know, like I said, sort of grim reaper type. He's got this cradle scythe and Excalibur, uh, is, uh, is really not coming through for him. I was kind of unsure with what the issue was with that, or maybe just like, I don't know, somehow Jula able to defeat Arthur. But Arthur kind of like, I think he gets wounded. He like throws the sword up and then it lands like in his back. And then he falls through the dock and sinks to the bottom, and like turns to stone, and like sinks to the bottom of the moat or the lake, and like there the sword is in the stone. So that's where Guy Ritchie creates the origin of the sword in the stone. This, the stone is like basically a petrified Arthur, but it, it like it turns into this, you know, larger rock, mound of rocks, like large, like really big rocks. So it's not like it's shaped like uh, Uther. Uh, but <clears throat> so there the sword in the stone is at the bottom of this body of water. So that's, uh, the stage is set. Vortigern takes over Camelot with this military coup. Arthur's in the boat, which floats away and floats down to a little place called Londinium, where he grows, uh, gets found by these prostitutes who are like washing their laundry in the river. And, um, you know the rest is history so <clears throat> after uh, after this this kind of sequence starts it shows arthur getting raised by these prostitutes in a brothel, grows up, gets his street education, learns to fight and defend himself, shows, uh, shows his come up pretty much him in the fighting pits, him learning martial arts, him getting his money, stacking up these chests of money, hiding this money starts to become a good fighter. Uh, there's this cool martial arts instructor that said they're doing like, uh, they they say at one point they're doing Kung Fu. Uh, um, I'm sure that this is like a dude they were training Thai tie boxing and stuff with, but they do some really cool, uh, little fight sequences, uh, and training montages in this. There's a sequence that I really liked uh, where Arthur's, like, uh, doing these uppercuts. And it's, like, right when it first shows Charlie Hunman. And he is freaking ripped. So it uh, shows kind of his come up in this fast, choppy little Guy Ritchie sequence. That's one thing. Like, uh, that's the second time. Like, that's sort of a... Uh, either like a linear sequence of scenes like they're like Arthur getting older, like, Hey, doing this, doing that. Each, each little scene, he's a little older. He might be the same age in a couple of smaller scenes, but he's aging and, and he's, you know, you see all the main points of what, what they're trying to get across. He's growing up and getting this mean streets education and so on. So <clears throat> meanwhile, Charlie Hyman grows up, he starts getting haunted with these dreams, you know, of the, these images and memories and trauma of, him seeing his dad in the demon night fight and his dad not making it out of that without turning to a stone and sinking to the bottom of a lake and him floating off and getting raised by these prostitutes and his mom dying right in front of him. Probably pretty traumatic. It'll give me nightmares too. So, meanwhile, back at Camelot, special problems are brewing, and uh, the sword at the bottom of this, you know, body of water, the the water just recedes, and the sword reveals itself, and that's because Arthur, the born king, is coming of age. So that starts to kind of uh, turn some uh, turn some heads, I guess you could say, especially Vortigern Jude Law's head. So Sword itself, and Vordigan is pretty upset about this. He goes back to the moat to talk to Mr. crazy magical octopus creature man, and um there's this there's this thing where um they're building a tower, right so like uh-, uh Vordigan's trying to build this mage tower where he's going to um basically, I don't know, conjure up some super crazy black magic. I, I wasn't really following with 100% of what they are going to do because at some point, at certain points, the fantasy is just a little like, eh. especially at the end, then they go into this tower and stuff. But uh, the, I believe um, Mordred was, um, he was building a tower or, or there was a tower that Uther had built and they were, I don't know, there's some sort of symbology of the tower. I, I don't know what it is, the mage tower, I Look it up. So, um, Tower was cool. I did think all the architecture was cool. I really thought that was good. Whether they did it on a computer or not, I don't know if it's CGI, but I really thought, I really liked the way they depicted Camelot and the countryside and, uh, Londinium. And it it was good in that regard. I thought they, uh, the universe seemed a little small, but I mean, you know what? UK and England's kind of a small place. It's a tiny island. So... But it, it, they did. Uh, they did. I, I don't know. I thought that maybe they could have had like one more, one more place. Uh, I'll, they kind of see. They start off in Camelot. You got Londinium. You've got the like sort of Robin Hood's hideout type place for the resistance, which is not a very creative name considering Star Wars. Uh, well, I guess that this film came out before. No, it didn't come out for Force Awakens. So yeah, they stole it from Star Wars. But maybe Guy Ritchie started working on it before Star Wars Force Awakens came out. That's possible, too, because it took him so long to complete. Anyway, so there's this concern by Jude Law because his tower's not complete, and the tower needs to be complete so he can have this power, and the deal he made with Octopus Man didn't come true like he wanted because he lost the sword and he lost Arthur. So, that's why the sword is reacting in this way, by revealing the water, so Arthur can come and draw it out and start wrecking shop. So, because he's alive, uh, the sword is only going to answer to him, Uh, and uh, Mr. Octopus Man tells him another loved one could perhaps change things for him, Uh, so he's going to need to sacrifice uh, somebody that he loves, and he uh, he has a couple daughters, but anyway... So then enter the situation we'll just call the Viking incident. It's this back-and-forth sort of Guy Ritchie-style storytelling which makes this scene really unique. It's a uh, bust-in Ruse Bolton. And here in this scene, you get two Game of Thrones characters. He said, hey, there's this man who hit this barge down the street from uh, downriver or upriver or wherever in the river. And uh the resistance fighters and... Um, he he has this question about this prostitute named Lucy and this Viking named gray Greybeard and graffiti on the outside of the brothel, which Arthur is looking over and protecting all the prostitutes at that raised him. So, um, they entered this sort of uh verbal exchange, this is where like it is really sort of guy richie. I would just refer to it as choppy. It's like choppy storytelling, back and forth, pop, pop, pop right? So, um, Unfortunately, these Vikings are under uh, these kings' protection and Arthur cut off one of their beards because they beat the shit out of this prostitute and so on and so forth. So Ruse Bolton from Game of Thrones has to tell Arthur that he messed up and him and his friends now have to go uh, be criminals at Camelot or whatever. So they end up getting transported to Camelot he like wakes up from a bad dream and his friends are like, we got to get out of here. The black legs are coming. The black legs are, are the bad guys. And, um, I think maybe before this, anyway, they find that little finger, uh, his character, the resistance fighter, he's in the brothel. Arthur kind of gives him up. So you don't know him at this point, but little do you know, is like that guy used to be one of his dad's, like number one dudes, like one of his dad's knights, Right. So anyhow, Arthur he ends up getting shipped off to Camelot uh, where criminals are being forced to attempt to draw the sword so uh, enter that scene next um, where uh, <clears throat> you get um, you get Arthur showing up joking around cutting to the front of the line drawing the sword and then he pulls the sword out and, like, there's some resistance because he goes to touch the sword and he feels it, right? And then so the guys down there with the dogs are like, oh, ten digits, wrap them around. And so he does that and he, like, gets the flashbacks and then he draws the sword and poof, passes out. Next, he wakes up um, and Jude Law's talking to him and Jude Law's impressed about his come up, how, how hard that must have been and... Kind of goes into the issue of um, what's going to happen next, which is Jude Law is going to do this, I, I don't know, like this weird display of power in front of all the people, which I really like this scene. So, like, he basically takes Arthur up, and there's this montage where, like, Jude Law is putting on his armor, and, and like, the I just, like, I really, his armor is super reminiscent of Sauron and Lord of the Rings. Like these crazy metal gloves, like pointed little knuckle fingers and stuff. I was really into it. So maybe this armor—it wasn't super shiny like the 1980 version, uh, but it was—it was super nice. I really I liked his attention to detail on the armor and like, and then just like Vordigan's kingdom. It was like borderline gothic in in nature and definitely in architecture, but like just. Um, just the dress of everyone. Uh, I really liked how they incorporated colors into it. And I'll, I'll, mention a few other things, um, as we move on about, uh, things i I really enjoyed in terms of color. So he forces him to go out because he threatens to kill all of the, he like has all his prostitute friends, um, from the brothel that he's been protecting that raised him. He's like, I'm going to kill all of these girls unless you go out there and you show these people that I am the true King. Cause I killed your dad and blah, 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 blah. And, Excalibur's going to answer to me as soon as I kill you. And I'm going to go out there. And then he goes out there and is just like straight up like uh, he's like, you know, power is intoxicating. He goes out there and he just like waves his hand. And it looks like it. he went a little. It looked like they're doing the, the Heil Hitler, the the arms like uh, going out in front. Uh, but he like raises his hand and they're just like, oh, oh, yes, yes, Jude, law, we are. Love you. And then he like waves his hand again. They're all like, oh my God, we're going to bow. And it's just very like Nazi Third Reich. um Anyway, he challenges Arthur, who's all like chained up to take Excalibur and show the people his power, which he told him if he does that, do him, he's going to kill him or whatever. And or he's going to kill the girls outside, that he's going to sit there and like make Arthur look like he. Is nothing in front of everybody, and then kill him that way. There's no resistance anymore. I don't know. I don't really know where they're going with that. So, <clears throat> Vordigan challenges to take Excalibur and show the people, but that doesn't go so well because there's this mage girl in this blue, and she has shown up and she is talking to a guy from Never Back Down. She's like, "I'm here. I'm sent from Merlin to help Arthur um, become who he's supposed to be." So, she um. She controls animals, right, so she gets this falcon to cause this disturbance and gets all the dogs like attacking like the guards and all these animals start going wild and then, anyway. Arthur and, you know, the people that are with the mage and the resistance, they all jump off this cliff, and I think they lost a couple of people in the process, but anyway, I believe it's four total, counting Arthur to get out with uh, with them, and they all, like I said, did jump off this crazy high cliff. I would never do that, and then I thought something was kind of unrealistic, because they were like, this cliff was so high, but they were like shooting arrows down into the water, and like, when they went, like, probably, I don't know, like 15 feet under the surface, the arrows are like almost hitting them, and I'm like... I just think that like shooting arrows straight down, as far as they were depicting that, uh, it would lose momentum on the way down and would not would not go that deep between the sur- uh below the surface. But I just thought it was kind of unrealistic. It's like you're not shooting bullets, and even bullets at, at that in that situation, I don't know. I don't know. You can put it in the comments if you know. Again, probably not going to read them. So these Resistance members are able to get Arthur and escape, Excalibur's saved, um, and uh, they start this long journey to the Resistance hideout. So that's where the Arthur's like, hey, I know about your kind, the mages, you uh, control animals. Huh, huh, huh. And uh, also, one thing I really liked, uh, I meant to mention the first scene was like the music. It's really like, Whoa. Like dark, ominous tones. And then also they kind of get this cool sort of Celtic-Irish uh, music coming in. So uh, in this scene, they had this cool sort of... You know, a little, little river dance. Dubstep river dance is what we're going to call it. So uh, I really enjoyed overall the uh, the music in the movie, whether it was dark, ominous tones or Irish dub. So Charlie Hyman's character... He, um, I don't know. I liked his character. I thought that some of his lines were a little awkward, and it could have been how he was delivering them. I'm not sure. But just, just some of his dialogue seemed rushed, right? Um, this could be how they, they were just trying to bring apart across his street upbringing or what have you and his background. But anyway, so. That's that. Uh, anyway, this bootstrap Bill, Littlefinger, he shows up, and he's trying to provoke Arthur to fight, and all these Resistance members that, like, kidnapped him. Like, hey, you know, here's your background, here's your story, and this Excalibur, and we need you to fight for us so we can take Camelot back, and you can be the king, and yada, yada, yada. Arthur refuses. I'm not going to fight you guys. And uh, then he just, like, beats the shit out of all of them. But, again, he they goad him into wielding Excalibur at some point, and he passes out. So... Mage wakes him up, uh, and it's uh, every time passes out maybe five times to this point. He's been having these weird dream sequences, the trauma of his mom dying, and all that stuff, flashbacks. So Mage wakes Arthur up, reveals he's refusing the sword, and not the other way around. And um, <clears throat> that is when they uh, they head to these places. Uh, this place called the Darklands. So. We'll uh we'll go into that uh in when Arthur's training to, in the Darklands next. So from here forward is where I guess you could say spend a little more uh suspend a little more belief, uh disbelief. It's it's a little less believable from here on. So he's training the Dark Lands. This has some cool special effects. Rains, cliffs, hills, uh this giant snake, giant bats, giant rats, rodents of unusual size um it kind of reminded me of those flying tyrannosaurus wrecked pterodactyls from that recent jurassic park movie anyway this also reminded me a little bit of that scene where young king leonidas in 300 kind of goes out with the wolves uh, like out when he's a little boy anyway um so he has to go train the dark lands to sort of break him down um he sees skulls in the mud he finds um he finds this altar stone he touches his sword to it and uh here you get this blue color in his eyes again um he sees his mother die starts his vision sequence again multiple vision sequences throughout the movie this is another one um blue eye special effects there's um uh from here um he puts both hands on the sword and Uther pulls his uh, pulls like the sword out of Arthur's hand in this flashback where um, his dad, Uther, is fighting Vortigan and like cuts Arthur's hands. That could be um, part of his like mental dramatic hang up on wielding the sword with both hands. Um, but uh, so it also shows Uther fall into the water with the sword in his back again. So this little vision sequence here. Um, also uh, he kind of flashes to like uh, Mor- Mort- uh vordigan's uh mage tower so uh and then flashes back to the purge of the mages and this deal that Vordigan makes with uh Mordred uh and um to overthrow the king uther so this little vision sequence he has it um it allows him to uh sort of get some insight now he 's going to be able to wield the sword with both hands he 's going to need to get the support of all these barons and powerful families throughout the kingdom if he 's going to want to take out Vortigan. Um Vordigan's got the Vikings in his court, but there's are um these uh whispers of a second king and um anyway that's uh you get this um sort of trap that uh, Vordigan lays out a sort of cool scene uh, where um <clears throat> The guy uh Littlefinger, Peter Baelish, that actor. He uh bootstrap Bill, he shoots uh the, the King lays a trap uh in um Londinium and um there's this boat trap and he shoots basically Bordigan's right hand man, kills him with a bow, and then they have to go um flee through the streets so this is uh this is a pretty cool scene where um Arthur and his people are th- fleeing through the street, streets very uh guy richie uh sort of scene where it keeps flashing to their um, f- flash into the uh, faces of the guys fleeing then it kind of flashes uh, to all the action and they keep uh, running on obstacles very sort of guy Ritchie sort of sequence. I thought it was cool um, anyway uh so let's see here um fight scenes, cool fight scenes in the streets all throughout this one. And then also, so uh, they get kind of pinned up where the Asian guy, George, the martial arts master, like where he has a little training camp, uh, sort of in his courtyard and Arthur uh, wields Excalibur, both hands, kills everybody. Totally crazy. Um, anyway, so they kind of escape after he does that. Then Vort again, the blacklegs find this safe house. So they kill the blue boy's dad. Um, and Arthur and the others escape in a, in a boat and, uh, get out and run away. So, uh, from that point, um, Arthur kind of wants to, you know, he is still not, um, not fully convinced. I guess he tries to run away and throws the sword away. Lady of the Lake carries it to him, uh, to this mud puddle and pulls him down and says, let me show you what your, um, uh, you know, to accept a sword, only you can, only you can do this. Trust the mage basically gives him a little message, pulls a sword down, uh, pulls him down through the mud, uh, puddle. And, uh, so Vortigan, um, Vortigan basically goes and wipes out everybody that's hiding in the cave. So, uh, the mage uh, and Arthur, they meet back there. Everyone's dead. Uh, New King's right-hand man does, uh, from uh, is there, and he tells Arthur to kind of come in. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, everything will be okay. He'll let people go, I guess. I don't really remember what the conditions he gave him was. So Arthur, basically, the mage makes him up some sort of secret potion, and he eats it or drinks it. I don't really remember if it was a liquid or a solid but he starts tripping balls so this is pretty cool special effects vision sequence yet again where he's riding into um camelot and um this fake uh this falcon carries a snake in um he sees uh he sees the black legs and the vortigans guards and they look super crazy so it's a cool little special effects sequence with him sort of like uh, it looks like he's tripping balls so he gets brought before vortigan then this giant snake eats everybody. Vortigan runs back to the moat, kills his daughter, um, and then becomes the crazy cradle, scythe, wielding, um, death eater, crazy looking thing. And so, uh, he says, you have one nephew. He fights, um, Arthur fights with Jude Law, talks to his dad, sees, catches sword, he's losing, and then he wakes up and, uh, anyway, finds strength in the situation that he's in and, Basically just beats the shit out of vortigan and you know stabs and kills his uncle and mage tower collapses and this whole last scene, and really honestly, from the time where he goes in the dark lands, where the movie kind of hmm, kind of slowed down a little bit for me in the very end, it shows him building his um his mate uh sorry he it shows him building a round table, so it shows him kind of like uh also dealing with the Viking's gray beard that had uh, been with vortigan that he cut his beard off and Anyway, so uh, it uh, it kind of has a little happy ending with his uh, round table. Uh, I think that um, so this is if you are wanting to watch King Arthur, um, a great place to watch it. It's two hours and seven minutes on HBO. Apparently, there was just a whole ton of stuff that was cut out of the movie, and um, so like a really really substantial portion of the movie was. Uh, was trimmed like three hours or something. It's supposed to, and it took way longer to make. It didn't do as well in the box office as I guess they thought it was going to do. So uh, I don't know, but Guy Ritchie was originally talking about making um, like six, up to six King Arthur movies, and maybe will over his career. That's cool. I think that Charlie Hunman uh, has a little bit of a hard time carrying this whole movie by himself. Um, I think he's awesome in Sons of Anarchy. I think he's awesome in Green Street Hooligans. But I haven't really watched a whole lot of other Charlie Hunnam stuff. And he does okay. But um, like Swords, the last half of the movie, I just feel like he is a lead role, kind of lacks the ability to, um, to carry the rest of the film. And um, like I said, the suspension of belief, they set that up in the very first scene. But the whole sort of last quarter of the movie is a little out there. I said from the training in the darklands on, that's why I didn't really go as deep into that. But I mean, overall again, I like the movie. It was good, um, I'm looking on HBO here cause I thought there was a little, um, like a trivia type, uh, way to look at, um, a way to, uh, pan through some of the, uh, some of the trivia facts about the movie and it being filmed. So, uh, there was a lot of cool. I, I saw this on there the other day. Oh, a kid in King Arthur's courts on HBO classic from my childhood. Uh, let's see. I'm going to go ahead and click on this and see what it's going to do for me. I don't think that's going to be it, but, um, HBO go app. That's what I'm, uh, I'm looking at right here. You can, uh you can stream this. Uh, I've just got a Google Chrome set up here in my studio. And a lot of times we'll stream whatever on the TV while we're, uh, while we're watching or commenting on things on a podcast. So, uh, but I'm not seeing, uh, seeing a way to look at this trivia they had on there the other day, but, uh, pretty cool, uh, pretty cool backstory about the movie and some of the, some of the filming. That's how I found out that, um, uh, so much of the film was cut out, uh, was by reading that HBO trivia, which is not available today for whatever reason on my device. So, uh, but anyway, uh, hopefully, um, I know it's kind of a spoiler uh, type review. I'll put that in the, um, uh, the comments of the parentheticals about that. But, uh, thanks for listening, uh, to after the show, we're going to continue to provide you with additional reviews of TV shows, Netflix originals, movies, uh, and other things. Even, uh, you can check out, uh, we've even done commentary on, um, seminars on YouTube, like eggs and Gracie seminars. So, Subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are also on um, a few different uh, platforms now. Uh, you can listen to us on Spotify. Uh, we've got uh, our podcast on Spotify. And through Spotify, been put on over to some other newer um, newer platforms as well. But you can check us out on Spotify. Our, my main host uh, for Life Unraveled podcast is Podbean. So you can get an app for Podbean on your phone or you can um <clears throat> you can uh just go online and download it from there uh so you can access it but we're on YouTube of course Podbean Stitcher Spotify Apple iTunes podcast app Player FM Listen Notes and Castrex so that is um the Player FM Listen Notes and Castrex those are uh, three newer ones we're on through getting accepted to Spotify. So subscribe to uh, the podcast, audio, video, and uh, otherwise, and uh, check out our evolution. Uh, we're just within our uh, between 30 and 40 episodes right now. and goal is to get um, over 100 episodes out in 2018, and by this time next year, uh, my goal is actually 250 episodes. So stay tuned. Uh, we'll be posting regularly. We have a lot of new uh, podcasts up. Uh, And we're having guests on regularly, uh, so listen back, subscribe so you can get notified. Thanks for listening, everybody.